And again, thank you all for being with us tonight. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'd love for you to open up with me into the Gospel of John as we're going to hear from John uh, just what happened uh, on that Friday so many years ago that we uh, commemorate tonight. Uh, John, unlike the other three uh, gospel writers, John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. He was a bystander. He was um, there with Jesus to the very end. So his perspective, I think, is unique and uh, especially sacred and, and precious to the church. And we're grateful that we get to read from his report. Uh, John 19, uh, verses 1 through 16, God's word says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged or flogged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came wearing the crown of thorns in the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and you crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him and said, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, Pilate, when he heard that saying, was more afraid. and went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered and said, you would have no power against me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and set him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? Then the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. If you've ever read the gospel accounts, and I hope you have, but if you've ever read the gospels front to back of Jesus's life and ministry, you've probably picked up on how much detail there is, just as we've read in this passage. Uh, we have uh, very um, on the ground eyewitness reports of the people that were there, the places they were uh, in the interactions around Jesus. These are not vague, sparse summaries of the interactions and events surrounding Jesus. Uh, these are eyewitness reports down to the minute detail of time of day, location, season, and everything you could ever ask for in terms of uh, to, to validate and to give you uh, confidence in what you're reading. We get spotlights of people in the background. We're told things that don't even pertain to the overall message, uh, but they help buoy the veracity of the account. And, and this is especially true with regards to the last week of Jesus' life, uh, which was Passover week 30 AD. And, and as we call it in hindsight, 
Holy Week or Passion Week, uh, we have so much detail that spans this seven-day period. And for instance, um, the, the first three years of Jesus' ministry uh, is covered in the first uh, two-thirds of each gospel, but the last third of each gospel focuses entirely on this seven-day period. So just think about this. If you read Matthew 21 through 28, Mark 11 through 16, Luke 19 through 24, John 12 through 21, just that section alone, literally a third of each book is dedicated to a seven-day period, whereas the earlier portions are dedicated to a three-year period. So again, time moves glacially slow when you get to Palm Sunday and when you begin to move through Passover week. Obviously, it's not hard to understand why. The Gospels are about giving us all the details and the last week of Jesus' life being so important, no details could be spared. We get the finite details about the priests and the religious leaders plotting to trap and catch Jesus. We hear the disciples dialogue with Jesus in the upper room. We know all about the Thursday night last supper ceremony, uh, the walk to the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and we know everything that went on between Jesus and the 12. We hear about the mob that came to arrest him in the garden. We know about the kangaroo court that uh, was assembled by the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. Uh, we hear about his arrival at Pilate's palace and all that went on between the two. We know what was said between Jesus and Herod, Jesus and Pilate, Jesus and the council, and all that opposed him. We know the disciples, what they did in response to all this, how they ran away. We read how Jesus was treated by the authorities. First, the Jewish high council. Matthew tells us this, that they spit on him, they struck him, and they slapped him and mocked him. We read, or you can read earlier in John uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 19, they flogged him, which was literally uh, using a Roman cat of nine tails to rip the flesh off of his back. They would have left him barely able to walk, bleeding profusely. And John's account, we've already mentioned, is laser focused because John was there with his own eyes seeing all this and reporting all of this. John also had friends within the religious and political community. So he would have been given even more of an inside track on what was said and how long it lasted. Uh, we, we know that from the narrative that John was there on the scene on Golgotha's hill. Now I say all that to bring our attention to, to a particular part of the story. The most important part or the most at least most talked about part of the story and that is found in verse number 17 but it's been previewed all this time 17 it says he bearing his cross went out to a place called the skull which is in Hebrew called Golgotha where they crucified him now if you've been following along throughout the book of John or about throughout chapter 19 this word crucify has been an ominous term Pilate uh, asked them, do you want me to crucify your king? They shout crucify him several times. This, this idea of crucifixion was something that must have been uh, uh, something that was a big deal. Uh, it was the way they wanted Jesus dead. The, the fact that it was mentioned again and again and again lets us know that this was an ominous, looming event on the horizon. But then we get to verse 18 and all we're told is they crucified him. We don't get any details. We don't get the full gory account of what that meant. And isn't that strange? That we have, been getting, we have been getting all this information about who was there and what was done, how they treated him, every little inch in perspective of the events. 
But then we get to this statement that has been built up to throughout the book of John, throughout the Gospels. We get to the statement, they crucified him. And we don't get any details about what it was like and what it was like, what Jesus experienced as he was put on the cross. Now, the reason I bring your attention to that is you know what it was like, don't you? Because you've seen it dramatized on screen. You've read in other books and you've read articles and you've heard experts talk about what it was like. You know more about these three words than you do other parts of the Bible that are far more detailed. But according to the gospel writers, we only get this simple statement. They crucified him. Now, in case you haven't heard, here's what those three words meant for Jesus. Roman crucifixion was supposed and was designed to bring about the most pain possible to an individual. Nails were hammered into the wrists and the ankles of the victim to sever the nerves in the most crucial joints of the body. This would bring about intolerable pain. Notwithstanding, they were, they were hanging upright on a cross with so the stress that that would bring on the now uh, wounded nerves of the body that would put even more pressure on the muscles and the arms and the legs. And because of the brain and because of its, uh, you know, our body's uh, attempt to stay alive, it would have put debilitating pressure on the lungs of the victim as they tried to lift themselves up. And as they lifted themselves up, the nerves would be triggered more and more. And as they began to try to gasp for air, the lungs would cramp and eventually they would rupture. As the victim by nature fought to cling to their life, every muscle would twist. Blood flow would eventually cease and oxygen would deplete minute by minute. Pain would throbbingly intensify and consciousness would slowly fade away. The victim was just a heartbeat away from cardiac arrest. As the blood thickened, dehydration intensified. And as they would gasp for air, the capillaries in their body would become so under pressure, they would rupture and burst, causing the person to spit up and begin bleeding from any and every outlet the body could provide. But the Bible tells us, the eyewitnesses simply tell us they crucified him. And if you want to check Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us the same sentence. They crucified him. They crucified him. They crucified him. Why do we just get these words? Why do we just get this simple statement? Why not the details that the rest of the story provides? And here's, here's why I think that is so. Anybody living in the first century Roman world would have known all too well what crucifixion was like. Anybody living 2,000 years ago in the Roman world would have known all too well the details of crucifixion were far too prevalent and far too normalized for every person alive. Everybody alive 2,000 years ago had seen crucifixions. They had smelled crucifixions. They had heard crucifixions. Jesus wasn't the first person crucified. He wouldn't be the last person crucified, let alone the last Jewish person. Just a few decades later, Rome would come in and crucify hundreds of thousands of Jews as they laid waste to Judea once and for all. 
So the reason why the gospel writers don't explain crucifixion to us is because they did not feel like an explanation was needed because everybody knew crucifixion. Everybody knew somebody that was crucified and everybody knew someone that would be crucified. It was inevitable. In fact, on this day, two other people were crucified with Jesus, one to his right and one to his left. As the story goes, we aren't given insight about how Jesus was suffering. We're simply to glean from those three words, they crucified him. And, and, and from that, we know his suffering was the most intense and extreme any human experience had ever or could ever be. Crucifixion was so sadistic and sick and twisted. Rome had engineered in, in the, the tormenting process in such a way that it actually made it hard for someone to die. Roman crucifixion was meant to ensure that someone suffered the slowest, cruelest, most painful death possible. It was truly an evil invention. And if you study the crucifixion, the history of crucifixion, it had been worked on for centuries. The Assyrians invented it. The Greeks came along and perfected it. And Rome came along and engineered it to where the person that was crucified would slowly bleed out and slowly lose air and slowly fade away. A brutal and inhumane way for even a criminal to die. So I, I bring all this up because I want you to think this was the world that God had sent Jesus into. You know, you think about how bad our world is and it is a messed up place, but this was the world, a world where thousands of people were crucified every single week. This was the world that God so loved this was the world that God sent a savior to reveal himself. This was the world that God sent Jesus to reveal the kingdom of God to. I mean, really? This was the people that deserve that? We mentioned earlier that John was on the scene watching all this go down. He was there because Jesus' mother was there. John couldn't bear the thought of his mother watching this alone. And he went to comfort her. And I want you to just imagine, can you imagine what Mary's eyes Saul, can you imagine watching your own child suffer in any way, let alone this way? One of the most raw, gut-wrenching verses to read in context is verse number 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And of course, John was there too because of what happens right after this. I think we're told that Jesus' mother is watching because we're supposed to also be reminded that Jesus' father was also watching. Jesus' mother Mary watched, but God the Father also watched. Mary literally stood helpless, but not God. God could have intervened, of course, right? And don't you think he wanted to? Jesus even told us that he had the ability to request this from God. And I don't think it's insignificant to note that Mary's two roles in John bookended the story of John. It, back in John chapter 2, we have Mary on the scene at a wedding where she asked Jesus to show himself, reveal himself. And I can't but imagine think she was wondering the same as she watched him flogged and struggle under the weight of the cross. I'm sure she wondered, Jesus, now is your time. You told me back then it's not time yet. Clearly now is. Show them who you are. Show them what you can do. Little did she know he was about to do that, but not in the way anybody expected. And, and I'm sure that even his most hated critics expected him somehow to escape this. 
He had saved so many, how could he not save himself? Would he call legions of angels down to save him and judge the world? And every time he mumbled half of a word, they thought he was calling on God to intervene. As Mary watched from the base of the hill, God the Father also watched from the highest of heavens. And I can't help but think their hearts were both bearing the same pain and the same righteous anger. In fact, in, in verse 25, the Greek word for by the cross or near the cross, it, it doesn't just evoke proximity, but the, the phrase evokes participation. That the, the word there evokes being so close to someone that you're feeling what they're feeling. You're experiencing what they're experiencing near the cross, by the cross. Mary was there and as he suffered, her heart was broken as well. And I can't help but think that God the Father was there with him as well. And I know that, I know that. Jesus was God in flesh. He came as God's son. He was one with God in heaven. He was one with God the Father. He had a closeness and an intimacy with God that had never been broken. All throughout the gospels, we hear Jesus say that, that he and the Father had a relationship. They, had, they were always in harmony. They were always in agreement. They always did things in step with one another. And, and he, said, he said in John 10, I and the Father are one, that I do nothing that God is not there with me, doing it as well. So there's no way that the Father wasn't bearing this and feeling this as Jesus suffered, so did he. Near the cross, can you imagine what God thought as he watched the very people he sent Jesus to? Can you imagine what he thought and what he felt as they, they rejected him and as they shouted and literally crucified him? Is this what humanity had come to? You ever think about, you ever sit back and see what's going on in the world and think, well, is this what it's come to? Can, I mean, at this point in history, can you ever, can you imagine what God thought 2,000 years ago? Is this what humanity has come to. They had despised and rejected his own son. It would appear as if there was no hope for the world. Sin had ruined creation. Unlike Mary, God the Father could absolutely do something about this. He had sent Jesus. He could save Jesus. His holy nature must have burned with intolerance for humanity's guile and destructive lust. A price had to be paid Yes, Jesus has made it clear. He knew what he was facing. He willingly dove headlong into this, but surely this was too much. Surely he would call on the Father to intervene. Jesus had said again and again, I can ask anything I want from him and he will give it to me. And now losing vitality, profusely shedding blood, the nails piercing into his hands and feet, the crown of thorns piercing into his brow, his heart on the brink of cardiac arrest, barely able to breathe. Surely Jesus would call on God to do something. And that's exactly what he did. He called on God with one ultimate request. There was Mary watching and hoping, God the Father willing and ready and John, alongside Mary and her friends, maybe they were the only ones that got a glimpse of what would happen next. Luke tells us that this was the request that Jesus made. Father, forgive them. 
Father, as your wrath builds and as your wrath burns and as your anger intensifies, as you look on this world at the people you sent me to, as they've rejected me and as they've cursed me and as they've mocked me and as they've crucified me, Father, I know what you want to do to them. I know what they deserve. But my request from you is not to send angels to save me. It's not to judge this world. Father, my request from you, my one last wish from you is that you would forgive them for they know not what they do. And in that moment, when Jesus asked the Father to forgive them, he was asking the Father to judge him. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And, and they looked like they, know what, they knew what they were doing very well. Right after this, they literally take his garments and they divide them and they cast lots for them because they were wondering if they'd be worth something later. They knew what they were doing. They were wicked people. They were bloodthirsty people. They did this all intentionally, even crying out, let his blood be on our hands. But Jesus saw something that any, nobody else could see. And when the father was ready to do what any father would do, Jesus said, Father, don't judge them. Judge me. Already suffering at the hands of sinful man, Jesus prayed that he might suffer for sinful man. Do you follow that? Do you track with that? That in the place where humanity had shown its true colors, drawing the ire of God, Jesus knew that this was the moment he'd been born for and lifted up because of man's sin. He could redeem this moment and used it to save man from sin. When humanity proved itself deserving of judgment, Jesus intervened and prayed to be judged for humanity. And this was the plan all along. And this is the remarkable upside down nature of the gospel that we'll never understand, that we never will ever be worthy of. This is the gospel. And the apostle Paul would say this later in retrospect. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And let me just explain what this means. Weak, what do you mean weak? As in I'm, I'm not strong enough? Weak as in we turn the son of God over to death. And I know we weren't there, but we would have if we would have been there. And let me think, let me say this. You know how weak we are? We are so weak that we give in to the slightest of temptations, don't we? We are so weak that if the wind blows slightly in our direction of temptation, we give in. We put everything in front of God. We know he is worthy. We know he is supreme. We know he deserves everything, not just a percentage, not just a day, not just an hour. He deserves everything. He alone is worthy of our lives in our praise, in our service. And yet we put him second, third, fourth, and last all the time, don't we? That's how weak we are. When sin walks by, we look in his direction. When our flesh says, I want that, we do what our flesh wants because we are weak. When somebody makes us mad, we don't forgive them. We get mad at them. We get even with them. When someone curses us, we curse them. When someone takes from us, we take back. When someone punches, we punch back. When someone does something we don't like, we do something that, to prove to them that we have the upper hand. We are so weak that we put everything in front of God because our flesh craves it. Yet in the moment that our weak, our weak nature was most exposed in humanity, 
When humanity had a choice, Jesus or, or Barabbas, Jesus or another way, they chose the other way. They chose Barabbas. They put Jesus on a cross. That's how weak we are. That's how weak all of us are. But here's the good news. If you are well aware of your weakness tonight, if you are well aware of how weak you are and how fragile you are and how, how easy you succumb to sin in your flesh, the good news is at the time when you are at your weakest, God sent Jesus to die for you. Yes, we are weak and yes, we are quick to go astray. But in the moment of our weakest, Christ died for us. Think about the worst thing you've ever done. That is the point that God looks at you and says, I sent Jesus to die for you. And of course, all of us in our weakest, in our weak flesh, we are always at that place. And we are always at the place where God says, in your weakness, Jesus died for you. Paul says, for one scarcely would die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good, would, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what is the gospel? That at, went in your sin, worthy of judgment, Christ's response to you is, Father, forgive them. And if it takes judging me to forgive them, give it all to me so that they don't receive a drop of it. This is the world we live in. We, we are so quick to say, well, that's God's judgment and God's judging them and God, all of the judgment this world has ever deserved was put on Jesus when he died for us. Every drop of hell placed on Jesus. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from wrath. Jesus volunteered to take the punishment for all sins so that humans could be forgiven by and reconciled to their creator. He was forsaken in our place. He presented himself as the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He took the wrath due to those who would believe and even those who wouldn't believe. He could meet God's righteous standard that men had been trying and failing to meet for centuries. For this reason, he had been born. For this purpose, had he come into the world. All that preceded was preparation for this moment. The sun quit shining. The earth quit turning. The father poured out judgment on Jesus in our place. And it was too much for people to watch. So God turned the lights off as Jesus drank every last drop of God's wrath. There on the hillside engulfed in darkness as Jesus immersed into judgment, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that when the lights came back on about 3 p.m., all they could see was a blood-stained hillside. Just like a Passover lamb, Jesus had been slaughtered. He had bled to death. The lamb of God had taken away the sins of the world. The love of God would forever be magnified and proven by this day. But John, because he was there, John tells us a little more. Because he was up close and personal with Mary and God the Father watching and hearing it all for himself. In verse 28, it says that after this, after that darkness, after that request to be judged in our place Jesus knowing all things were accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled he said I thirst now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it on his mouth 
So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So John and Mary watched Jesus die. And one thing John wants us to know is that Jesus did not die at the mercy of man. He suffered that time of darkness. He endured all of that suffering and all of that torture. And he was still alive. He gave up his life. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one took his life. He gave it away. He drank the cup of wrath. He suffered as a living lamb of God for the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, cups of wine are a picture of judgment. Back at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, Jesus told Mary, this is not the time when she asked him to restore the wine. She didn't realize the miracle would come later, the true miracle. He drank this cup, he treaded the wine press, he took it all in, and when the cup was empty, when the cup was finished, he cried out, it is finished. And that's one Greek word. The Greek word is tetelestai, which is it is finished in English, which means completion, fulfilled, accomplished. And in this moment, the debt of sin was paid. Every sin you have committed and you will commit, every sin of every sinner was paid for. Whether you receive it or not, recognize it or not, Jesus died and he completed it for you. The debt of your sin was paid. In Christ, all would, all would have access to God by faith in his finished work. And that means we are reconciled to God and we can have a relationship with God. Because Jesus finished the cup and turned it upside down and said, it's done. There's nothing standing between you and God anymore. About 3 p.m., Jesus endured the unrestrained wrath of God as the last drop of blood dripped to the ground. He bowed his head, gave up his life. His arms stretched wide as if to suggest his true ministry was only beginning. The debt was paid, the wrath was satisfied, and Jesus died just like he had lived with his arms wide open. And something else swung open at the same time. The temple veil was ripped in half. The gates of the kingdom of God were swung wide open. John tells us the soldiers came to break his legs to speed up the process of death, which could take days at times. But however, the soldiers found no need for that, verse 31. Therefore, before, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, which would have started at 6 p.m., the Jews asked Pilate that, they might, that the legs might be broken and that they might have, be taken away. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who were crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. He looked marred beyond that of a normal crucified victim. They had seen thousands in their service of Rome and none were as mangled and deformed as Jesus was because he was left unrecognizable and indistinguishable by the judgment of the cross. Later that evening, before his body could be thrown into the valley to be burnt, two men who admired Jesus from a distance decided it was time to go public, boldly, asking for the body of Jesus. One of them, named Joseph, gave up a seat on the high council and gave up his own tomb so that Jesus might have a proper burial. The bleeding was stopped. The darkness was lifted. Now Jesus could rest. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so that he came and took the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, who at first had come by night to Jesus, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. 
Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in the strips of linen with the spices and the, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had been yet, let yet, let, yet laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Laid to rest in a garden, a symbol of things yet to come. Friday was over and nothing would ever be the same after that day. Tonight, we marvel at the cross, how God took something so wretched and made it something glorious. His invitation over us tonight is the same promise. Ever since that day, there has been a gift before every one of us. The gift of God, the gift of grace, which is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's righteousness, we are made righteous through Jesus' death at the expense of Jesus. His body was broken for ours. His blood was poured out for us. Jesus took the Passover meal the night before he died and redefined it. It was no longer about a lamb and a nation. It was about a savior and a world. The meal that we have set before us represents the gift. His life laid down for us. His gift of salvation ready to be received and ready to be taken. We take his body tonight as we crush his body in our mouths, we remember that we are the reason he died on the cross. But as we crush his body, his body restores us and builds us back. We take his blood, his blood, uh, as we drink his blood, the juice that represents his blood, we remember that his blood is spotless, but ours is vile. As we drink his cup, we are washed clean and made new. How incredible, how remarkable. All lost and wretched sinners, we've fallen far from glory. We have no right to enter, save the old, old story. From its pages, God bids us come. From the cross, Jesus cries, it is done. A day marked by bloodstained wood, God has proclaimed, it is good.